Hi guys, it's Tori from Shadows of the Mitten. If you guys could just take a chance to rate, review, and subscribe us on iTunes or wherever you guys listen to your podcast, uh, we'd really appreciate it. Um, you know, forgive our not that great audio this week. Uh, we are moving into a new area in my house, so we're trying to figure out, you know, where's the best place for sound. Um, but we still want to hear from you, so you can find us at at Shadowy Mitt on Twitter, uh, at Shadows of the Mitten on Instagram, Facebook.com slash Shadows dash of dash the dash Mitten, or email us at Shadows of the Mitten at gmail.com if you have a spooky story about a vacation you took in Michigan, or that, you know, that includes the UP, um, or if you live in Michigan and anything crazy's ever happened to you because our state can be pretty crazy, uh, you know, stay safe out there, guys. We love you, and I hope you enjoy the first episode. Hi, guys. I'm Tori. And I'm Kate. And I'm Robert. And welcome to the first episode of the Shadows of the Mitt podcast. This yay. is... Yay! First episode... After a really, really long time talking about doing this. Yeah, well, we're here. That's all that matters. Yeah, volleyball season's over with, so Kate can dedicate herself to what really matters, which is murder. It's the best thing. <laughs> I'm bummed I didn't make it to a game this year. I know, we didn't. We, were bad yeah, we went undefeated. Gone. I know, we should have been there. <laughs> we're bad friends. We're bad friends. We didn't make it this year. No, oh, there's next year. There's no chance. There's yeah, every well, year until we you die. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> the income. Uh, anyway, so I guess I'm going to be starting a story today. I'll be the storyteller here. Um, so I found a story that I found very interesting. Um, it's about a school bombing in Michigan in Bath Township. Oh shit! We should probably mention that this podcast is about Michigan. Oh fuck! Well, based <laughs> stuff. Hey, first Where's episode. Where's Bath Township? First, first episode. Uh, yeah, this podcast is going to be based on Michigan mysteries, murders, and uh, weird shit. You know how shadowy our state is, and how many trash bag murderers we actually have. So does this include both peninsulas? Yes, it does include both peninsulas. And some of the islands. At the Hubris. Yep. Some yeah. of the islands, all of it. Uh, Parsons Island. Yeah. Fox Island. Island. Ooh. Zug Island, I'm sure something went down. Dude, there. everything. <laughs> yeah, all the field trips there, you guys are going. Yeah. With the steam as a crematorium. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Kate is kind of a coward. When it comes to scary things, I just I don't like I don't do Halloween. I don't do scary uh-huh. shit. And I don't like I like fun in the sun. That's what I like. <laughs> so <laughs> I hide in the basement. Tropical places. Halloween, so I don't think pass out candy. But we are going to do uh, little mini episodes where Robert and I go on adventures to um, places where murders have happened. And things like that. Hopefully not in progress. Yeah. (laughs) Not in progress. Well, we won't be going downtown. No. Um, I mean, I'll go to stuff like that. I just don't want to go on your urban (laughs) legends where you stand at the bridge and yell red rum and some girl shows up. And that I'm not doing. We took Kate to Belle Isle once. Once for a paper I had to write in college. At night. Which I got an A on. Uh, At night. 
and some real scary shit happened. But yeah, there's some creepy guys fucking chasing us, and I was yeah. like, get the fuck out of here, I'm never coming back. So, but we look for our little mini episodes that Robert and I are doing about scary places. Should be coming within the next month or so. Um, yeah, so, uh, Kate, back Brother to you about your story. Yes. <laughs> no, I you. Okay, so I thought it was interesting. I'm, like, researching things um, in Michigan that have happened in... I love history, and I thought that this was a little different from the typical missing persons and or murdered type of story that usually happens. Um, So I guess I'm going to kind of go over it the way I researched it, because I had it written down in a timeline, and it was kind of boring. It just wasn't as impactful, I guess. Um, So what it is, is it's the Bath School disaster. Um, It's also known as the Bath School bombing when you're researching. Um, It was 92 years ago and happened on May 18th, 1927. Um, May 18th? May 18th. Ooh, day after my birthday. Day after, yes. Um, Though I'm pretty sure this guy would be in a creep on your birthday, if that makes you feel any better. Um, (laughs) So... Splatic that day. This was done in Bath Township. So Bath Township, um, per Google Maps and my like basic rummaging through there, um, is about 18, 20 minutes northeast if you drive from downtown Lansing. Um, it's more like a farming, a small farming community. Hmm. Um, the perp's name is Andrew Kehoe. Kehoe, I don't know how you say it, but we're going to go with Kehoe. Um, what happened was it was... Um, a school bombing of the Bath uh, School Township. Um, it was more of like a community school, so they didn't have it split up between elementary, middle, and high school. It was sort of just like a one, um, like a big consolidated school oh, in one awesome. building. Because it was 1927, so oh, the way the school yeah. district was structured back then was different than it is now. Um, weapons used were dynamite, pyrotol, and a Winchester Model 45. Hmm. Um, death toll was 45. Um, 38 elementary age kids, six adults, um, one victim, one adult victim at the perp's house, perp himself who committed suicide, um, and 58 others were injured. Um, it's actually the United States' largest, um, like, school-related, um, like, violent act. So, like, yes. now it's all shootings. Now there's nothing but shootings yeah. or the random kid bringing a knife to school. Um, so you look at, like, Virginia Tech and Columbine, you know, everything's done with... Sandy Hook, yeah. Yeah, Sandy Hook, all, all machine, like, machine guns or whatever it is. Um, they are... I don't, semi-automatic, uh, semi-automatic, not machine guns, semi-automatic yeah. rifles. Um, so obviously back then, those types of things didn't exist. So I think it's interesting that when we talk about gun violence in this country that nobody, you know... We talk about school violence in this country. Yeah. Nobody brings this up. It's all right. everything that's recent. Um... And I think there's a lot of psychology behind this that is interesting to study. And I think that, at least from my research, people should be talking about it. Um, so I just want to go over the perp a little bit, give you a little bit of background on him. Um, so his name was Andrew Philip Kehoe, and he was born in Tecumseh, Michigan, on February 1st of 1872 to parents uh, Philip and Nancy. So or no, not Nancy, was, Mary. He was old then. No, he was... He was 53 at the time of the bombing. Jesus. Yeah. Um, he also actually, interesting enough, was married later in life as well. Um, he studied electrical engineering at what is now Michigan State University. It was known back then, I think, as like a Michigan college or something like Where that. Where Spartans? Um, <laughs> wait, out there. Uh, like, no, fuck you, Michigan. <laughs> I'm wearing a Michigan hoodie. Um, 
He married his wife, Nellie, in 1912. So he was older because he was born in 72. He didn't get married until he was 1912. Um, so he was a bit older when they got married. They never had any children. Um, he was 40, 40 years old. Um, seven years after they got married, they did move um, to a farm that's just outside of Bath. It was actually her, uh, Nellie, his wife, his uncle's, her uncle's farm. And um, when his wife had passed away, uh, Andrew had approached him and asked if he could buy the farm. I couldn't find anything as to why he would want to, um, because as we'll go into it later, he wasn't a... Uh, wasn't like a, a farmer type of person. He didn't wear overalls and walk right, around like, like, you know, Jonathan Kent. He was, you know, walking around in business suits. Right. Um, he, like you said, he's got the engineering degree. Yeah, he so. went and studied, um, I believe it was in Missouri. I have it right down. Missouri. Uh, Missouri. Missouri. Um, studied electrical engineering, and he was very big into, um, you know, electricity at that time was something new, something that was just coming out into towns and things like that. Um so he wasn't he wasn't a farmer. So not, I couldn't find anything that says as to why he wanted the land. Maybe but he did cider mill or something. Cider mill. It's <laughs> a no, big economy here. Yeah, he did not do any type of cider milling. He's going to take down the Yates and Blake or cider fortunes. <laughs> so Andrew was being a real creep for days leading up up to this stuff. He was doing some shady shady shit. But I think it would be easier just to talk about the disaster itself and then kind of. Trace you know, talk about it and then go into exactly what he was doing. Um, because he is sort of, uh, as I call him, he's, a, he's the pressure cooker. He, he This stuff builds up for him, and eventually he just can't take it anymore. Um, so what happened was, um, just before 8.45 in the morning, there's um, explosions at his farmhouse. <laughs> his own farm. So uh, you have the sheriff and his friends and stuff, everybody's rushing to his house and trying to figure out what's going on. And as he's like pulling out of this, in this truck, he's like emerges through the smoke as it's called, emerges through the smoke. And he tells people, you know, why are you here? You should get to the school and just drives off. <laughs> he literally just <laughs> leaves. Um, a few minutes later at exactly 8.45 in the morning, the north wing of the school had a, has a massive, massive explosion. Just all kinds of just debris is everywhere. Uh, there's giant holes in the sides of the building. Um, everything I got actually from this, um, I took from a book. It's called The Bath Massacre. Um, it's published in 2009, written by Arnie Bernstein. Um, there's pictures of that in there if anybody wants to look them up. Bernstein is in The Bernstein? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I don't know. That's it says run, Arnie Bernstein. Run Michigan with an iron fist. <laughs> They're everywhere. They are. Um, so everything is in there, all the information. They give you pictures of it. Um, there are some more, I mean, they're black and white pictures, obviously, but there are, like, pictures of remains and things in there. So if anybody wants to look that up, just be forewarned. We can put it up on our uh, on our Instagram and yeah. our Facebook and stuff like that. So if anybody's interested in that weird crap. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, there's bodies everywhere. Um, the school is there's part. The north wing is just blown completely out. Um, it's you can't even get through the school to the other side to escape. You have to go outside from the north side because two of the giant boilers fell, closing off the north and south sections of the school. So it was completely um, separate. You couldn't get through like to get to the other side of the school if you were trying to get to somebody. You had to try and come out through all that debris and everything that had fallen out. Um, so it's only a few minutes 
after that, the explosions at his house, and then the school goes off. Um, the book goes into a lot of, like, first-hand accounts and details. Mm-hmm. Um, I chose to leave them out. I didn't want to... A lot of it has to do with children. And right. As it, I just found it in bad taste to kind of go over those, so I sort of just have the details of everything else. Um, so the people, obviously, are thinking, like, Kehoe's being a weirdo. Why does he tell us to get to the school before they can even realize anything or turn around? The school has blown. Um, so people then moved from his home over to the school, um, and obviously he had drawn off, drove, drove off in his pickup truck that he had um, and parked it across the street and got there about 30 minutes after the first explosion. Um, after that, the accounts do differ as to the details of the next event, but basically what happened is he had explosives in his truck and um, Emery Hayek, who's the superintendent of the school, um, is approaches his truck and some people said that they saw them um, you know fighting over a firearm some people said that Hayek had run over there to get help from Andrew because Andrew was actually a trustee on the school board as we'll talk about later and ran over him to get help and then all of a sudden they were talking about something and there was some sort of scuffle after that so nobody really knows for certain what happened between them Um, but either way what happened is Kehoe shot the explosives in his truck and blew himself, Hayek, just completely to pieces. He just killed himself? Just gone. Killed himself. Is this and near I, the school? Is right across the street from the school. About 30 minutes after that first explosion, oh. after the explosion. Um, also injured was um, a, uh, an eight-year-old second grader named Cleo Clayton who had actually escaped... Um, the first explosion, because the North Wing was actually the younger kids. The, the South Wing was all the older kids. Um, he had actually ex- had um, escaped and was so- going through the debris and had gotten across the street um, when the truck exploded. It also killed Nelson McFarren, who was a retired farmer. Um, and it also injured the um, postmaster, Glenno Smith who actually lost a leg from it and then died later that day. Wait, so the little kid died? Yeah. After he escapes the explosion, gets himself out of the school. Oh, yeah. Just, I I, I must, it is assumed that this was his plan the entire time was to blow himself up. Right. um, Because he had the the explosives in the truck. Some people think that he may have intended to shoot the truck after he was outside of it, but nobody's going to know for sure. How pissed do you have to be? Like, you escaped... Like a burning inferno, and just to walk across the street, and be like, hey, what's up? And you're yeah, eight you years old. You're after eight thirty years minutes, old. it'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. calm. No, it's like it's like when you explode something and the help rushes in and you set off a second bomb mm-hmm. to to bring mass casualty. And I, I'm assuming that that was at least his intent was to cause more right, pandemonium. I mean, you've got explosions at his house and then at the school and then with this this third one with the truck. Um, so as I said, he was a, a, a part of the school board as a trustee. So there's all this, um, you know, gray area as to was Hayek trying to get his help? Was Hayek, um, were they just, was Kehoe just gone? And Hayek saw him and came out. He was trying to get out of the car with the gun and they were fighting over it. Um, there was a man by the name of Charles Hawson who testified that they were struggling over some type of long gun. Um, but it doesn't say as to when or if there was any talk between the two men before. But the two men, as we'll talk about later, have a very interesting relationship. So it wouldn't surprise me if they were fighting about something. Where was uh, where was this trash bag's wife? 
So Nelly is poor Nelly. Um, we're gonna talk about her in a bit, but she she, she mm, yeah. Well, Nelly has a really crappy life anyway. Um, she is always sick with tuberculosis and she's constantly ill. So Nelly was at this time back on the farm, and we'll talk about Nelly mm. in a bit here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's all I'm gonna say. She's she's at the house. Um, so. By this time, it's about, by the time the truck goes off, it's about roughly quarter after nine. It's about half an hour after that first explosion. Um, people are trying to pull debris off and rescue people up until 1045 um, when rescue workers and the sheriff's office makes the decision to stop rescue efforts because mm-hmm. they want to minimize the risk of any other injury or any type of other further explosions because nobody knows nope, what's going yeah. on. Um, so after they do this, they send people in to investigate, and they find that there's dynamite still beneath the school. Um, there are wires running through the basement all over the place, and it's connected to dynamite, but they have no idea where the other wires are going to. This lawsuit, you got to remember, the two sections of the school are actually cut off by those giant boilers. So that's all they see are these wires connected to dynamite, and they have no idea where they're going, so they just tell everybody, stop. You know, unfortunately, we want, we want to get in there and, do this and rescue people, but this might cause more of a problem if we're sending people in. If you're going to pull something, if you pull a wire or you do something. And this is 1927. So there's no, a lot of stuff isn't known about dynamite at all. The only thing you know about dynamite is from the picture shows, as they call them back then, when you have like the comedy stuff where the bad guy blows up dynamite and all he's left with is like soot on his face. Like he gets blown up. He's holding a stick of dynamite and that's all that happens to him. I mean, so... As far as the public knows, because there's no mainstream media, pick new motion pictures are a new thing, all they see is, oh, it's like a joke. Dynamite can't really hurt somebody. So this is the first time that like the public is seeing that dynamite has this horrible um, result when used on buildings and on people. I mean, before that, it's only used in construction. Mining. Mining. Farming would use it to clear land. So... It's, it's kind of this thing where nobody knows what to do. I mean, we would know what kind of, like, how to approach something and what to do because this is how many years later. Um, but back then, it was just this new thing where nobody knows what to do. Um, I've seen Die Hard. I can cut the wire. Yes. I wouldn't be approaching anything. Yeah, you're like, no, I'd be out. Be out. Sorry, I'd, be out. I'd, be, I'd be grabbing kids that are on the street and be like, we're out. Um, so there's all this dynamite in the basement. It ends up being also packed into ceilings that are, that are hidden by wire mesh and plaster. Um, the wire trails continue from the north through to where those boilers were, and they find that they, it does continue to the south end of the school. Um, the wires are packed down by what's interesting as rusty staples. So the fact that these staples are rusty indicated to um, the sheriff's office that they have been there for quite some time. And it's not just like they were routed through these maybe staples that had already existed. These were the actual wires for the bombs that were nailed down right. with these um well what's back then the version of like a staple gun mm-hmm. um and they were rigged all the way through to the south side of the school but for only the north wing detonated though so they're doing all of this searching and they eventually come to the uh, conclusion that 504 pounds of dynamite were in the south wing alone and they failed to detonate so what he had used was an alarm clock um, with like a hot shot battery kind of thing to um, set off south side. It was also set for 845, but it failed. 
Um, there is speculation that it failed as due to faulty wiring or somewhere in the system he laid out there was some mm -hmm. sort of cut and it didn't set off or that the first explosion caused a short in the wiring. Because even though he had all this electrical engineering experience, electricity, all this kind of stuff is still new. So um, the fact he laid out all these systems was, in a way, very impressive. Kind of brilliant, yeah. But it's also limited to the, to its time. Yeah. So it's a, it possible that that first explosion caused a short somewhere in his system. Um, out of the 504 pounds, nine bushels of dynamite, several 30-pound sacks of pyrotol, 10 blasting caps, two detonated devices, and um, out of that, only 100 pounds were actually under the north wing. Most of it was under the south wing. Why? We're never going to know. Um, it's possible that the structure itself might have been more heavy on the south side. Maybe it was larger, so he needed more. No one knows. But 504 pounds total pyrotol dynamite just under the south how side. It must have taken a long time to yeah. transport all that and lay it out. Okay. Get there. Just say, uh, how does this motherfucker spend? Like, oh, what does he have a job? Does he work? He's a farmer, so I mean, he's doing his farming. <laughs> yeah, busy farming. Yeah, being shifty shift is what he's doing. Um, but we're gonna get there because um, as they're doing more digging, um, they sh it was shown that some areas of the explosives were found in areas so small that like a full grown man couldn't fit. Now he Ooh. wasn't a small guy from like my. Uh, research he wasn't tiny um so they actually had to find someone smaller to get into these areas to see what was in there um so they found 14 year old chester sweet who did he volunteer for this he did volunteer he was actually an older sibling of children of two children that were caught in the bombing oh, on the north okay. side okay that's yeah so he volunteered to he resigned he actually was um he had voluntarily resigned from the school to work on his family's farm, and back then that was normal. Oh, okay. So he actually was not at school, because he was yeah. working on his family's farm. So he went in, um, he was a smaller guy, 14 years old, went in, um, explored into these tiny little, like, you know, like cavern areas in the basement, um, got up into the ceilings to show that there was also a system of what looked like rain gutters that were littered with sticks of dynamite and explosives, um, some of these gutter systems went on different directions and could stretch for 25 to 30 feet at a time. Some were shorter, some were longer, expanding. So not only do you have sacks of these dynamite, pyrotol, all these things, there's also this system of just sticks of dynamite that are stretching like branches from a tree or roots from a tree out into the entire school system because it's in the ceiling of the basement, so the floors of the upper school area. Can we make a movie about this kid? I'm just telling you Listen, about it. Seriously. I mean, thankfully, uh, nothing happened to good old Chester. He was fine. Like, nothing got set off. But he was just like, nope, I'm going to go in there. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Chester, we're making a movie about you. You're probably dead. The but. book does go into what happened to Chester's siblings, and I'll just leave it for people to go find mm -hmm. kind of stuff like that. Um, He'd be over 100 years old now. Oh, no, he's dead. Well... <laughs> The um, what's interesting, actually, the, the oldest survivor um, was named Irene Dunham, and in 2007, she was 109. Yeah. Damn, I couldn't Irene. find anything with my digging if she's still alive two years later, but if she is, she's 111. She's the oldest survivor from the bombings. Get it, Irene? Yeah. Um, so the total percentage 14 percentage of the school population student-wise because there's some adults that died but 14 percent of the school population 
move on. And in, <laughs> I couldn't find the actual sizing of like what the student population was at the time, yeah. but it's a smaller farming area in 1927. I can't imagine it was huge. Uh, most of them were elementary age children. Um, they spent months having to clean this up. Um, so this happened um, in May. Into July, they're still cleaning this up. Um, July 19th, um, workers, um, all volunteers from the community, found a sack of dynamite and a kerosene-soaked rag in this debris. So nobody knows where it came from. It's just they found it while moving things around and digging. Um, there was also a ventilator that was packed with wood shavings um, so it, that was near it. So they're assuming that it was supposed to be used as an accelerant for mm-hmm. something. Um, so it's a good thing that they were taking months to kind of sort all this out and work through it because nobody knew what was going to happen. Um, they also found a grouping of 244 sticks of dynamite, um, which altogether bundled was about 200 pounds worth. Um, that was concealed below the first floor of the North Wing that also didn't explode. So there's an, also an additional amount that they're finding that didn't explode as well. Um, so that's, um, there was a lot of thing, a lot of details in the book about the cleanup and about mm-hmm. um, the community as itself as a whole, and I'll kind of go into that a little bit later. But if anybody wants more details about that, um, it's in the book. It's a, it's a very well-written book. It's very emotional. There's a lot of testimonials, a lot of details about the kids, so... Um, it's a good read. Um, so we're talking about Nellie now. Oh, good old Nellie. Good old Nellie. Um, so, uh, like I said, they were both married to each other later in life. They never had children. Um, there is a picture in the book of the two of them. He kind of, I wonder if I can find it so I can show you guys this. He, he kind of looks like Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm not going to lie. Like, in this photo. It was kind of weird to look at. Like, um, if he looks like Philip Seymour Hoffman, how's this motherfucker fitting into a place where, like, a 14-year-old has to go? You know, that was my... It was funny because I thought when I was reading that passage that it was going to say something like they found this kid that planted the dynamite for yeah. him. Uh, but it didn't. It was talking about... So they think he worked alone? As far as I know, everything that I read said that he had worked alone. There was no one else... Um, associated with him um how big was that trying to find this but i I wouldn't surprise me if somehow he did have someone that went in there and did that that's so elaborate was it no poor nelly really had a rough life like i said she was sick a lot of the time so oh here it is okay so there's a picture of the two of them um what's interesting actually while you're looking at that there is in bath I had this set for later, but we'll talk about it now. Um, yeah, he, he looks a lot like Philip Seymour. That Hoffman. looks like Philip Seymour. Like Hoffman. if they made a movie about this, if he was still alive, that's who I would totally pack to play this guy. Oh, Nelly. Oh yeah. Oh, Nelly, you have gray hair, but oof. There's um actually they yeah, turned the old middle school into a museum in Bath Township, and I if you know I had more time, I was totally gonna go out there and actually go to this museum and check it out. Um, talk about it a little bit more later, but they do have a museum out there along with several memorials um, that they've kept up. Um, I mean, he wasn't a terrible looking dude. No, he <laughs> looks like, I mean, I'd bang Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Rest in peace, Philip. All, all positive comments. But, uh, Chef's kiss to yes. you, Philip. Not to you. Oh, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, 
Yeah, Andrew Kehoe was interesting. Wow, um, he does look like Doesn't he? And it's even like, it's not a close-up Jeez. shot either. She kind of looks like shy. Eleanor Roosevelt in like, <laughs> the bit. old years. But you know what I noticed in my research is they had other pictures of people in this book. A lot of people look like that. It was mm-hmm. kind of like the, the trend back then. It was just this generic look that most women wore. Um, well, and if she had that crazy person as her husband, no wonder she aged. I don't get a farmer vibe yeah. from him. No, no, he yeah. it's like a lawyer. Right. He, uh, I don't think he ever. I think it was just the opportunity of the farm being presented at the time. Yeah, what crops do you have? Mm. You know, couldn't even apples. find that. <laughs> he had horses. They're pumpkins. Yeah, he had horses. Pumpkin patch. Um. So, Nellie. Oh, no. We're going to talk about Nellie and these explosions at the house that happened because a lot of it focuses on what happens, you know, you need to get to the school. Being a creep. Um, <laughs> what are you doing here? You need to get to the school. Yeah, it was. There's a passage in the book, and I, I don't know if I wrote it down here at some point, but, um, you know, he had, he literally was like, he emerged out of like this smoke and crap and then just drove off in his truck. Um, so, like I said in the beginning, he had set off these explosions just before the school bombings went off. I could, you know, obviously he's not around to tell us if that was intentional to draw people there so there's not as many people that have to take time to get back, you know, over to the school. Um, so, altogether, uh, the home, farming equipment, um, almost everything was destroyed through these bombs. The only thing that left, was left untouched was actually a chicken coop. However, there was a bomb in the chicken coop. It Lucky just, chickens. It, <laughs> I mean, I, I, they might all have died of terror at that point. I don't know. <laughs> but there actually was a bomb hooked through, like, some sort of interesting system in there. It just, again, failed to go off. Um, and all that was left also at the edge of the farm was a sign attached to a fence that Kehoe had wrote. Um, and I'm assuming, it just says he wrote it, so I'm assuming someone verified it was his handwriting. Yeah. He had etched in... Criminals are made, not born. This was just on a fence on the edge of their property. Okay. And he had etched this into some wooden sign. What the fuck? (laughs) So somebody wronged him in his life. Oh, apparently, according to Kehoe, a lot of stuff wronged him. Um, That's like some Joker shit. (laughs) All right, they're not born. So, I just want to watch the world burn. Apparently, Kehoe wanted to watch the world explode. Yes. So, um, Nellie, unfortunately, when they were digging through all this stuff at the farm, was not found alive. They actually took them a couple days to find her. Interestingly enough, there was this makeshift cart that was positioned by the chicken coop. It was, like, put together. It looked kind of like a wagon. Mm-hmm. Um and people apparently were passing by this for for a while while they were searching, but somebody eventually found her remains in this cart near the chicken coop. They were she was charred to her bones. Um, she had a bunch of fractures and dislocated bones. Um, it was undetermined if it was due to um, like the actual explosions or if it was from a physical harm by another person. Mm. What was interesting though is that she also had a skull fracture cracked open on her forehead. Um, so what the theory is is that she was murdered by him. There's some sort of blunt force trauma Maybe, from yeah. another human being. Um, and then she was placed in the cart before the explosions happened. That seems to be the, the biggest consensus. But there also is no, there's doubt because um, for when explosions happen, fractures can happen and things can fall on a body and things like that. So you can't be certain. Um, but it is theorized that actually he killed her the day before because 
um, on my birthday. Ooh. Yes, be, told you he's being a creep oh. the day before. Um, because she actually, well, we'll talk about more later, but she was actually hospitalized with this tuberculosis stuff, mm-hmm. and um, he had brought her home, and people hadn't seen her in a couple days. So it is theorized he may have actually killed her a couple days before, and then there was nobody around to like stop him from being creepy at home, getting his plans ready. Um, it was also found that her corset and stuff was all in, all intact, so she was fully clothed. It was burned onto her bones. Um, mm. But again, it was too hard to tell if like she if it this was like at what point like was just time during the day. Obviously, she was dressed, so it was nothing that happened at night. Um, so there were also personal items that were found with her. Um, it was actually interesting because the book mentions that they were ceremonial, almost like ceremonial, placed yeah. next to her body. So that's also a theory that he had killed her. Coffee that was a coffee time. maker. <laughs> he had killed her, placed her in this cart, and put these objects there, um, and then had set everything off. So what was found with her was a lady's gold watch, a brooch and chain, earrings, an opal ring, and a diamond ring. And a pin from the Knights of Maccabees. Apparently, it was like a a prestigious group. I couldn't find much. So, like some Knights um, of Columbus. Yes, kind of. I think it was similar to that. Um, there were also large rolls of cash, or what could have been classified as Liberty Bonds, which is actually what they mm-hmm. used in World War One to purchase goods. And this is only 1927, so it's actually not that long after the Great War. So. So more than likely he killed her first because if she's surrounded by all the stuff, it's not like yeah no it wasn't she and she wasn't no. into the cart and it wasn't like she was <laughs> in all the stuff no like she just she was in the house and it flew with yeah. her more than likely she, it was all placed there yeah. um so it was just interesting um they couldn't tell if it was actual money or these bonds I don't didn't say why but apparently they must have been similar enough so was this house discovered exploded or did somebody hear it and come. So, apparently it was heard right before the school, and then people that were in the area were rushing to the house. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there are pictures in this book, if you guys want to leaf through there, of the house. Pretty much all that's left is the chimney. Um, there's, it's pretty much all eviscerated. And the chicken coop. Other than the chicken coop. Chicken coop. Um, there was no mention of the chickens. <laughs> the the chicken chickens coop. own the property now. Um, but <laughs> as we find out, Andrew Kehoe is not a animal lover. Oh. Um, mm. So, in the barn was found, he had two horses. He had, the horses were found dead in the barn. Come on. But what was worse is that they were found that their legs had been tied with barbed wire. No! I have no idea why he needed to make sure the horses died, like they couldn't get away. Um, so he had tied them with barbed wire. Why'd she shut the door of the barn? Because apparently then the horses could bust out and that would just ruin his plans. They would go tell everybody, apparently. I don't know. Um, but there are other things from Kehoe's past um, that sort of indicates he's not an animal person. And again, I don't know why he bought a farm. Um, so the madness of, of Kehoe starts at, at an earlier age. Um, so there's some early warning signs um, that I guess now seem like things to us. But back then, who Kehoe was and where he had placed himself in the community wouldn't seem like alarms then. Right. Which is kind of why I, this this reminds me so much of when we talk about warning signs and things about people that commit, you know, not just school bombings or, or school shootings, but public shootings and public bombings, you know, you know the Vegas stuff, the Florida stuff, all that stuff, Houston, uh, Ohio, yeah. um, where they look into all the psyche and the signs. Um, so one of the things is electrical engineering. It was this new new thing that was out, and he chose to go and study it. Um, 
and people, there are accounts in the book about people saying that he was a man who was always interested in control and a man that was always interested in power. Um, there were times where he, I was the 4th of July, I believe, I forget what year, it's in my notes a little later, um, where he had was blowing things up on the 4th of July with bombs, like bo- but bombs. But People call them bombs. It's actually dynamite. <laughs> so he's a blowing stuff up here. And uh, it actually, the, it had worried the neighbors and they went and talked to Nellie and she's like, oh, he's just being a big child. He's just blowing off steam, you know. And blowing off steam. The, the neighbors had called it unconventional fireworks because while everybody else is like using fireworks, he's blowing up dynamite on his land. So it's very interesting um, that he chose this path of a new technology that was sort of um, had to do with all this power um, and harnessing it. Um, There is a couple of things in here that I'm going to read directly from the book. So, Robert, when you're done with it, thank you. Um, That happened in his early life. And for the life of me, I just couldn't rewrite this to make sense. so his father had, uh, his mother had died, and his father had remarried um, a very younger woman, mm-hmm. um, and they had both brought, like, children into the marriage and things like that, because she was a young widow, as they called her, a child bride. Um, I'm sorry, what? Well, child bride back then, it's literally in quotes in the book, and I'm assuming it means that she was very young and had children. So, like, she was probably, you know, 18 or so. They called her child bride. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's not meant as how it is now, um, but she did bring in children from her previous marriage, um, and I'm trying to find her name here. I believe her name was Hetty. Um, so what happened was she basically was, there was like a uh, an oven explosion at the house, and Kehoe didn't really get along with his new mommy dearest. They apparently had a bunch of tension. She was, of course, you have to remember, she is younger than, much younger than Kehoe as well at that time. Um, so I believe, where was it here? Um, so, let's see. Oh, so eventually after this oven explosion, um, it takes a few years for them to sort of look into if he was involved or not. Um, Francis, that was her name. Um, so after the bombing starts happening, people start looking into Francis's, or Francis's accident and Kehoe's mm-hmm. past and all this stuff. Um, and he was acting very strange once it happened. He was rushing to help her. He was trying to, um, you know, get her better. And then as soon as, like, he would get her the things that... Like, to help her, he got her, like, a rag, trying to find people to help. He sort of just disappeared. Like, kind of just, jerk it. No, I mean, I don't know, just sort of left. Um, <laughs> so, people were very quick to judge if he had arranged it, because she eventually did die. Um, it wasn't like, you know, and people were like, oh, they didn't get along and this stuff. So, they're trying to figure out um, if he actually, it says that um, there was speculation that he had tinkered with gadgets and machinery um, to do with the oven, as he had done with other things since his childhood. Um, it was conceivable that he would know how to ring a, rig the stove for detonation, because it wasn't just a fire, like it exploded. You know, a complete explosion. And how old was he at this point? <sighs> Um, you know, I don't exactly know how old he was. I'm wondering if there's, let me see if there's a year, because I didn't write down a year. Um, I know, okay, so here we go, Sunday, September 17th, 1911. Um, Francis had her daughter, 
they're picking hickory nuts from behind a forest um, near the Kehoe farm. Um, so this would be his father's farm, not his mm -hmm. farm. Um, and apparently Francis went into the kitchen. Uh, there was a small room in the back of the house and a large stove um, dominated the entire space. It was a pretty big stove. Um, and let's see, it says the temperature of the gas stove is generally about 495. And it, when they were doing the readings after the explosion, um, it actually ended up being in the range for ignition, which is between like over 800 degrees hmm. of the stove. Um, so she struck a match, as rumor right. has it, she struck a match, touched it to the pilot light, and hmm. explosion. Um, so I'm not quite certain. It, it, he was home alone. It says he was home mm -hmm. earlier in the day, Andrew was, so it is possible that he had rigged um, this stove to go off, especially because they didn't get along. and They weren't ex like volatile with each other. They just didn't really get along. Um, there's also... A story of uh, David Hart, who was a neighbor farmer. Um, so before the Kehoes had actually moved in, Andrew Kehoe and his wife Nellie had moved into their property. David Hart, um, they had a family dog, um, a little, a little tiny dog, a family pet, um, who often would just wander off in a neighbor's property. It was kind of yippy, is barking a lot. Yeah. Um, and we call them kick me dogs. Eh, yeah, it's, it's some sort of I believe a terrier or something like that. And anybody would always come home. It would you know go yip at the neighbors and come back. So March nineteen twenty, about a year after the Kehoes um, moved in, the dog went missing. No. And David had always said that obviously this dog was used to wandering into like neighboring properties right. because no one had been there before and had bothered the dog. So the dog itself, after it went missing. David said that Andrew had oftentimes yelled at him about this dog and he was sick and tired of it being basically being an annoying piece of shit and didn't want him around his property. So there were plenty, and the book does go into firsthand accounts of speculation as to what happened, but basically the rumor is that he killed this dog. And if we remember right, I mean, he's tying his up his own horses up with barbed wire right. and killing them in his barn. So it's, I wouldn't put it past him. Um, so these kinds of things are, are sort of the early signs, early things that are just looking back now are very interesting. But people at the time weren't making note of anything. He was a peculiar guy anyway. Um, like I said, he, he wasn't typically the farming man. Um, so as I mentioned before, Nellie's uncle, Lawrence, um, he had this land and his 80-acre farm and... When his wife died, Andrew had approached him about buying it. Um, he gave him a $6,000 down payment, March 27th, 1919. So he and Nellie married in 1919. He buys this farm from her family. Um, so as, as it showed in there, Robert had mentioned that like, he looks like a suit, like he's not a farmer, <laughs> because he wasn't. Um, he, I don't know, it could, doesn't say why he wanted to buy this farm, but he basically approached it like a business and according to uh, witnesses and people who were around at the time he always wore suits when he was doing farming work <gasps> he would ride like the tractor and stuff in his <laughs> suit looking like the monopoly <laughs> and treating it like a business and I, it doesn't mention if they ever had farm hands or anything um so i wonder if you go to the museum if it kind of would give you more details yeah. as to that kind of stuff um, but after the explosion and stuff, the land goes through quite a few different owners, but no one ever does anything with it. The Kehoe property, um, no one ever, like, 
invests into doing anything with it. They own it. It goes through quite a few different hands. Um, but he wasn't quite like the farming guy. It was more of like a business for him. I couldn't find anything about what they turned out as far as profit. Um, but he also... Um, Include or after he gets the farm, he decides he wants to be in a strong presence in the local farm bureaus association, and inserts himself into being like on all these boards and things. And so to me, it just seemed like he was into wanting to be like in a position of power, right? Position of authority. Doesn't matter what it's about. Um, so he basically gets himself on the stuff, and people actually respect him very well in that community uh, because he does present himself as like a businessman. Um, Interestingly enough, Kehoe, as though he doesn't have children, he runs for school board trustee <laughs> and is actually elected uh, July 14, 1924. Um, it had a three-year term that was sent to expire July 1927. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, a few months after the bombing. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, Hayek, who's the superintendent of the school, um, apparently he and Kehoe did not get along from the beginning. Um, Kehoe was very much like, why are you here? This has to do with money. Because apparently he was very good with money and the books always balanced down to the last penny with him with the school. Um, and Hayek wanted to be inserted in it because he wanted to make sure everything was being done for the good of the students and all this stuff. Um, Kehoe actually voiced that he wanted Hayek banned from the meetings and the, his hatred of him was well-known and open. So it wasn't a secret that he didn't like Hayek at all. Um, more, Hayek was more like, okay, what do we need to spend to take care of the kids? And Kehoe was very tight-fisted with it. He was a very fiscal man. He wanted things like, we don't need to spend money on this. Which makes sense because he didn't have any children. No, and that's what I'm saying. He doesn't understand it. So it was interesting, and I couldn't find anything as far as firsthand accounts of why he decided to run. Yeah, I was going to say, can did. you be on the school board now with no children? Isn't that kind of creepy? I think now they... Yeah, if you're good with money. Yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, he's a trustee. It's not right. like he's running as anything else. He's basically just a trustee. Um, I wonder if this was just his ploy of getting into the school so he could plant his stuff. I don't think so, but he does use that as the way to plant it, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, so Kehoe and Hayek not getting along. They're not bros in any way, shape, or form. Um, Kehoe saw him, and I quote from the book, a person who needed to learn his place in the community. And Kehoe was the person who knew just how to make that happen. So I'm not sure if he said that at some point, but, um, he, yeah, they did not get along at all. Um, Hayek, like I said, just wanted what was best for the kids, uh, and Keo had that reputation of being really meticulous, tight-fisted, and wanted everything balanced and minimal spending. Um, so there was a man by the name of, um, Detloff, who was actually, um, the husband of the township clerk. His wife unexpectedly passed away. I believe her name was Maud. Um, she passed away April 1925. Oh, um, the local Republicans in the area asked Kehoe if he would want to complete her term as a township clerk. And, of course, he took it because this is a much larger scale of power mm-hmm. than Kehoe has um, had in the past. So, of course, he takes it. Um, a year later, so it would have been 1926, in the general election for that specific position he filled, 
they actually, um, the Republicans had basically tapped someone else to take that. And um, so he and his wife sat in the proceedings very silently, um, you know, as he lost basically his position, never said anything. Um, a year later, spring 1927, he was nominated and then, of course, defeated for the position of County Justice of the Peace. Again, he and Nellie sat basically there. Um, it's like a public meeting where they announced like the election results. Um, so like when I lost, silent. when I lost senior year. Oh yeah, school yeah. election. Didn't get school president <laughs> or uh, class president. Ooh. Oh yeah. I did not sit silently but, though. I didn't know. But Kehoe did. I picked a locker. <laughs> he just stifled all these feelings inside, so nobody ever knew how he actually felt. Um, like I said, he was also known, though, like I said, to set those weird explosions off. Uh, the one year was like 4th of July. They, it was when they really worried the neighbors with those unconventional fireworks. Um, and so I'm not sure. He would do this uh, occasionally. Not all the time. Every once in a while. Um, I'm not sure if that was his way of dealing with it or not. Um, but then in July 1926, at an annual school board meeting, uh, there was a big public show between him and Kehoe where um, Kehoe was, again, tight-fisted. Um, for a while, it was working with the citizens and everyone else, and um, Hayek was very much into, like, what we need to do what's best for the school. They were passing um, uh, school board tax that did not sit well with Kehoe. Um, and you could tell in this, this was a big meeting um, where... You could definitely tell the support for Hayek was greater than the support for Kehoe, and it was known. Um, so I think that that big embarrassment in front of everybody to see that people are no longer on your side, they're no longer wanting to save the money they want to invest it in the students, was a huge thing for Kehoe. Um, his fiscal habits didn't transition well uh, to everyone else. Nobody else wanted to do that anymore, but he still did. Um, those same fiscal habits, however, did not transition to his personal life. This is right before the Great Depression, right? Yeah, if I'm thinking, yes. oh, if he had just made it, it to there, he would have been loved by everyone. Oh, well, you know, he would have saved the city. If he had lived till then, he wouldn't have had a place to live. Because listen oh, to this. Shit. So he didn't take, apparently didn't take care of his financial efforts uh, at home as well as he did for the school. So. Um, they bought this uh, farm in 1919, and up until March 1921, they were making regular payments on the mortgage and the interest, then nothing. No payments through the rest of the year, no payments then into 1922. He wrote a letter to basically um, uh, Dunback, who's basically the, the lawyer that's like kind of helping with their mortgage, um, wrote a letter stating that he couldn't make the payments and needed an extension. Um, and, of course, the guy was like, oh, okay. He was very, uh, Dunbeck was very, apparently, unforgiving, mm -hmm. loved to help people. So he said, okay, here's an extension. A year later, so it would have been around 1923, still no payments. I mean, by now, in this day and age, you would have been evicted every yeah. six months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is two Three months. Three months. months. <laughs> We're talking, like, from 1921 to 1923, no payments. Um, he asked uh, Dunbeck if they would be evicted and call, I said, calmly. He told them, no, no, we're not going to be evicted. Don't worry about it. We'll get it worked out. What? So now we jump to September 1925. So we're talking over four years since they stopped making payments. Um, a letter was received uh, to the lawyer's office from Nellie asking how much the appraisal of their property was and how much they still owed, but no payments were received. 
So they received this letter, but then no payments, nothing. Um, Nellie had actually come into some inheritance from her side of the family. Um, so they were left with like $500 checks. Eventually, those were applied to the mortgage because the lawyers like were not receiving anything. Mm -hmm. So he applied it there and then sent a letter to them saying like, this is what we're doing because it's in the best interest of everybody. So, you know, you have payments and this and that. Um, Nellie... Um, was, uh, was there, the checks were actually done to her because it was through her family. Um, but they were applied to the mortgage. Um, and at the same time, Nellie actually is having a lot of trouble with tuberculosis. So it's not known if she was sending these letters from, you know, hospital or wherever. Mm -hmm. But she's the one communicating through this, figuring out how much their appraisal is, how much they still owe. Andrew's doing none of that. Right. Probably be, on the suit. Because apparently, from what I can deduce, Andrew was not happy with the way things were going. Um, so Dunenbach um, learned from Nellie's sister. She, he ran into her in town um, and said, hey, you know, I haven't heard from them. Do you know what's going on? Um, and Nellie's sister actually told him, like, no, she's really sick. They're having a really hard time. And at this point... Uh, Junior Beck had actually, before he ran into her, sent a telegram to the sheriff's office for a notice of eviction. So Junior Beck, being the sweet, awesome guy he is, um, sent a telegram then to the sheriff's office that said, hey, I tried to get a hold of you all day. Um, I can't, you know, haven't been able to reach you by phone or whatever. Uh, can you just hold off. Do not proceed until further notice from me. Apparently they don't get it because a local deputy <laughs> shows up and hands... Kehoe the papers, and Kehoe said, and if I quote, if it hadn't been for the $300 school tax, I might have paid off my mortgage. So that school tax that they had proposed, um, you know, because the citizens want to have mm -hmm. better More stuff for the school, oh. and of course that ties back to Hayek, mm -hmm. who's the superintendent, um, he saw that as the reason he couldn't uh, pay his mortgage and the reason he was having all this downfall. And he had, you know, had been very vocal against it. We're all um, a second job, like the rest of us. So, well, when your first job is suit farming. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, he's got a number of factors stressing him. So, he's got his wife's health, which is in and out of battle with tuberculosis and other things. He's got his mortgage that he can't pay for years, but still has a place to live. Um, his failing political office ambition... Um, he's in constant fight with the school board and with Hayek, and um, Kehoe was uh, actually known to cause problems with Hayek on purpose. Uh, there's reports that because he's a trustee, he's in charge of, like, checks, like his uh, salary, it was known that he would actually specifically delay the checks to the superintendent's office for his salary, like he would just delay taking them to him. So poor Hayek's face doing his job. Um, so here's a lot of things going on. Um, he, after a while, starts to have problems with Hayek to the point where it's like explosions in these meetings mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> explosions. No pun intended. So... We are now to mid-November of 1926. So Has he paid his mortgage? No. Like, they don't. Other than these yeah. checks getting applied to it, mm -hmm. he ain't paid shit. Still has a place to live, 
but not paying it because due to back situation. Do we know how much his mortgage was at that point? I wasn't able to find it in the book. Um, it was only a six thousand dollar down payment though on this eighty acre land, which I'm assuming nowadays you need a lot more. Um, imagine, imagine acres. if this house was only six grand. <laughs> well, I mean, my grandma's house back when they built it, it was only like fifteen thousand dollars. Oh, the one that she owns now. Oh yeah, when it was being built. So, in mid-November 1926, he buys several boxes of dynamite um, what money? A, place, a place out in Lansing. Yeah, I don't know. Probably the money is squirreling from right. Hayek's checks, or maybe, I don't know, maybe he's taking money off there. Um, several days later, he goes back to this place in Lansing and buys, um, in December, buys uh, blasting caps and a Winchester rifle and 100 rounds of ammunition. And again, he's a farmer, so nobody's thinking, like, why are you buying massive amounts of dynamite? Because it's used on farming land. He's maybe hunting things off his property that shouldn't be there. Background checks for dynamite. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing is, it's, it's, at the time, it's with his job as a farmer. Nobody's, nobody's seeing this. He's buying massive stores of this. Terrorism really wasn't enough. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So that's mid-November through December 1926. February 1927, still no mortgage payments. So we're talking, (laughs) hold on here. So we're talking from, where's my notes here? 1921. Can't even pay his own bills. So six years, close to six years, we're talking no mortgage payments. Still What's he doing with his money then? Unfortunately, I don't know. Because it talks about gambling or women. It doesn't talk about anything. Hmm. Um, He's just eating it. (laughs) So by March 31st... Raining on the farm. I'm Nelly. He's rolling in it. <laughs> he's rolling in it in his suit on his farm. So, uh, Nelly, look at this money dress I made you. Can't pay the bills. Uh, March 31st, they go to Dunenbeck's office about, he does, Kehoe does, about a third party maybe interested in buying the farm. Uh, Dunenbeck says, eh, dude, I don't think that's a great idea. You know, you've got all this back mortgage payment. It doesn't really put you in a great position. So, Kehoe says, okay, great. So a month later in April, they run into each other. This is April 1927. They run into each other in town, and he says, dude, I'm so glad you uh, told me, like, not to do it. You know, that was good advice. And that's the last time they see each other. Still no payments, period. So up to a month before the bombing, no payments. Um, so the previous fall, winter, and into spring, Nellie actually got very, very sick with tuberculosis and had to go to St. Lawrence's Hospital. She was in and out of there, sometimes for long stretches at a time. David Hart, who's the neighbor, whose dog went missing, um, testified that he did see Kehoe's truck coming home late at night sometimes. And by late at night back then, it was like 8, 9 o'clock. Hmm. Um, so he would see him come home late at That's night. late for me. Ah! For me, yeah, I'm in bed. Um, <laughs> Late at night, from what he assumed were trips to the hospital. By mid-April, he noticed that the trips were becoming increasingly more frequent, and the truck, he noticed, had boxes that were covered up with a tarp um, when he would come like back or forward and back from mm-hmm. these trips. So, frequent trips he's making, things covered in tarps. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> what had happened was eventually... Um, what he was doing was, because he's on the school board, he's this trustee... No one's questioning why he's going in and out of the school. So he's just going there late at night, and he is planting for months all this dynamite. So this is something that he has been planning, probably because he went back to start buying it in November of 1926. Hmm. So we're talking about six months prior, roughly. So um, 
In early May, before this happened, the maintenance guy, whose name was Frank Smith, did rounds in the basement um, and noticed that there were trap doors. It just said trap doors. I don't know what that means. What the fuck? If that, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that were open that he never touched himself. And he's the guy that would be down there touching it. He's like, I don't remember that lady being open, and I never do, but nothing ever comes of it. He doesn't, like, investigate. Sort of just, you know, whatever. Um, by Saturday, May 14th, it was interesting that a construction crew that was working on a bridge near Bath reported that a large quantity of dynamite actually went missing from their stores. Oh. So this is probably him um, going in and stealing a whole bunch of shit. Um, so there's actually a really creepy quote that like I'm gonna freaking out when <laughs> hazard. That's all it said. It never said like they did an investigation. Write like, eh, it off. Like We're not paid enough for this. <laughs> I ain't paid enough. Above my pay grade. Write yeah. it off. So this is May, and it's the end of the school year. And I'm gonna read this on page 53 from the book because this is so interesting. Um, so it says, and I quote: "The end of the school year always meant fun for the children. This year's classes were no exception." Bernice Sterling, the first grade teacher, um, had telephoned Kehoe and said, um, could we have a picnic with my students on the grove on the edge of your farm? And he said, when, when are you going to have it? Kehoe asked her, um, and she replied, Thursday. In retrospect, Sterling felt Kehoe's response was both forthright and enigmatic. Well, he told her, if you're going to have a picnic, you better have it right away. So, I mean, looking back now, you're like, oh, you're a creep. Like, right. foreshadowing. Right. Back then, I guess it could be seen like, well, oh, the school year is ending, the weather, you might want to do it. But, um, no, he was being real, what real creepy. What um, So, there were a lot of things that leading up to this. We should tell him to schedule around the time of the big explosion at his farm. Right. No, because that would have been blown up, too. So, what does it matter? Uh, they would have been dead either way. Um, so... There's a lot of stuff that goes in. The book goes into a lot of, like, the cleanup and a lot of things, um, like, students, you know, how they were dealing with the issue, um, going back to school. They had made, like, makeshift a makeshift school for them to go back to. Um, so the book goes into a lot of details about that, people, places, and stories. Um, what's interesting, I found in, like, the aftermath of all this, the book goes into the funerals and viewings and things. So back then in the 1920s, it was more common to have those kinds of things in your home, yeah. like visitations and viewings. Um, and the book actually here in the end of the book has a schedule of the funerals and things like that about when they were held. Mm. Um, so it was very interesting though, to see that a lot of them were on the same day at the same time, like chunks of them. So you have like all these kids who have seen their, their classmates or siblings or family members die and you can't even go to all of their stuff at the same time. It's like now, you know, it's just you have all this, like, where are you supposed to go? I can't even go to each person's thing because they had so much at the same time. I mean, we're looking at, it also has a list of the victims' names and uh, the injured and things like that um, that I wanted to go over just to give, you know, sort of like a memory to them. Um, but to them, it's like you have all these, these funerals going on. You can't even get to them. How, do you, how does that make people feel? It's just something that I found very interesting. Um, so out of the dead, you had um, Arnold Victor Burel. I'm not sure how to say that last name. Um, age 8. Um, Henry Bergen, age 14. Herman Bergen, age 11. Um, so I'm not sure maybe they're cousins or brothers. Yeah. Um, Robert Broman, age 12. 
Amelia Bromond, age 11. Um, Flynn Edwin Burnett, age 11. Chapman Russell, age 8. Cleo Clayton, who is the kid by the truck, mm -hmm. age 8. Robert Cochran, age 8. Ralph Albert Cushman, age 7. Uh, Edwin Earl Ewing, age 11. Um, O'Neill Catherine Foote, age 10. Um, she actually, interesting enough, says here she died nine days before her 10th birthday. Mm -hmm. Marguerite Fitz, age 11. Uh, Carlisle Walter Geisenhaver, age 9. Uh, Beatrice Gibbs, age 10. She actually died in August from injuries due to the incident. George Hall Jr., age 10. Willa Marie Hall, age 12. Iola Irene Hart, age 12. Um, she died one month short of her 13th birthday. Percy Eugene Hart, age 11. Vivian Oletta Hart, age 9. Blanche Elizabeth Hart, it has different uh, spelling. She's a teacher. This doesn't have her age. Galen Lyle Hart, age 12. Robert, Laver Robert Hart, age 9. Stanley Horace Hart, age 12. Francis Odo Hopper, Hopper. Hoppener, age 13, uh, Cecile Lorne Hunter, 13, um, Emery Hayek, the superintendent, Doris Elaine Johns, age 7, Andrew Kehoe and Nellie Kehoe, um, perpetrator and his wife, Clarence Wendell McFarren, age 13, Nelson McFarren, it doesn't have an age, so I'm assuming it's an adult, uh, Thelma Irene McDonald, age 7, uh, J. Emerson Medkoff, age 9, Emma Amelia Emma Amelia Nichols, age 13, Richard Dibble Richardson, age 12, Elsie Mildred Robb, age 12, uh, Polly Mae Schertz, age 9, died one day before her ninth birthday. Hmm. Glenn O. Smith, the postmaster that was killed um, when the car exploded, Hazel Iva Witch, uh, Weatherby, who's a teacher, Elizabeth Jane Witchell, age 10, Lucille June Witchell, age 9, Harold... Lemoyne Woodman, age 8, George Orville Zimmerman, age 10, and Lloyd Zimmerman, age 12. There is also a list of um, the 50s and the other people that were injured as well. Um, but I just wanted to read off the names of the dead. I mean, nobody's below age 14 mm -hmm. um, as far as the children. And like I said, most of that is from that segmented school in the north side. It was more yeah. of the younger children. Speaking of that, that sounds a lot like the school I went to. Yes, it was preschool through high school. Oh, yeah, really? So two, yeah. Oh. No, so I'm saying it's similar, similar concept. And back then, that was more normal. <laughs> and they had the boiler system right in the middle. It was an L shape. It sounds very similar. I was looking at the pictures. It's possible, though, because your school was built a long About time ago. So it would have been that style yeah, of how they exactly were building like stuff. That. So it's like an expanded version of a one-room schoolhouse. So it's, that makes me think that the south end was where probably the older kids were. Probably where the older kids were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, they did do an inquest into the cause of Emory Hayek's death. Um, it was a 50, 55 witnesses over two days, um, basically to go through and find out what was Kehoe sane or not, and they did find him sane at the time. Um, like I said, they had all the funerals um, over multiple days, a lot of them on the same day, same time. Um, a lot of the families actually stayed in Bath. Some did choose to leave. Um, children just couldn't handle uh, the trauma that they had been through. Um, the families that did stay helped the town rebuild together. Um, they are rebuilding the, the school. Um, the school did resume uh, with those sort of like semi-permanent buildings like the next year. 
So like it wasn't like, well, the school's been blown up, we can't go back to school because it was done in May. So they worked all summer, got stuff up so they could go back to school. Um, they've done a few different things. They had a lot of memorials built. Some of the interesting ones that I found um, in 1977, so 50 years after, at the high school graduation in Bath, diplomas were given to the alumni from the class of 1927, oh, and plaques were dedicated to the fallen um, people from the uh, bombing. That's dope. Yeah. 1985 is when that permanent exhibit was installed in the middle school called the Bath School Museum. So there's a lot of things in there. It's a museum about the the bombing. There's some remnants from the home that was blown up, all this stuff. But there's it's also like a museum of the time, so you kind of get that sense of the era and what happened um so it is a permanent installment um there's uh, a lot of um, plaques and things there's a park i think that has dedication to it um but they've done a lot of of stuff to keep the memory alive i mean we're talking 1927 to now is, is such a long time that um in that township in bath it's a, still a big thing um now like i said not many people talk about it um and there's a passage in here that I wanted to read um, for anyone that wanted to read the book. It's on page 175. Um, and I think for me, it's just kind of uh, made me think about this thing in, in a more human way. Um, so there was uh, a passage about a woman named Jose Josephine Cushman Vale. Um, and it said that it was a little past Mother's Day. Floors throughout the country were fresh out of red tulips. She made do with the best substitute she could find, a bouquet of orange roses. Her granddaughter, Heather Chadwick, picked Josephine up for the day to drive to Pleasant Hill Cemetery. Not much was said along the way. Josephine was lost in her thoughts. The week had been a little hectic in Bath. What with the newspapers, television stations coming in and out for a quick story on the 18th anniversary. In the wake of Virginia Tech, it seemed that the story had made more relevance to readers and viewers this year. Josephine was worried as of late, just shy of 94. She was still a feisty woman in love with life and all it had given her. She had been making this annual pilgrimage for decades. Josephine knew that it would eventually come to an end. Would Ralphie always get his red tulips? Don't worry, Heather reassured her. Bringing Ralph tulips every May 18th was a deeply ingrained family tradition, one that would continue for years to come. He's part of me, part of this family, she told her grandmother. Heather turned the car to the cemetery, slowly driving to the Cushman family plot. She helped her grandmother from the car for the short walk to Ralph's resting place. Slowly with purpose, Josephine knelt by the headstone and said, Ralphie, I'm here again, she whispered. She placed the roses next to his grave. For a moment, it was just the two of them. Josephine murmured a few words, an intimacy shared between sister and brother. She kissed her fingertips lightly and then touched them to Ralph's name overheard the sweet song of spring birds drifted through the air so it's just this thing where it's just this thing to me i would say that reaches beyond i mean just the, the test of time and it's still yeah. fresh for some people and so well was, and everyone who's experienced loss like you know it's, it's not a game this is it's real yeah and us talking about this kind of stuff you know i know some people think is exploitation and some people you know, disagree with, but I think, you know, one of the major things that true crime podcasts do is it allows us to come together and celebrate the victims, and they had lives, and they were people, and they mattered, 
Um, and I think it's also a way for us to deal with our own trauma. So you did a really good job. It was beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it was just something that, to me, you know, it's when you listen to all these true crime podcasts, and I thought everybody always talks about missing, murdered scandals, and I just thought this was so different. This was something that was something on Michigan history I'd never even heard of. Yeah. No. We've all lived here for, God, 28 years. and Yeah. 27. Yeah. Birthdays this month. Next one. So... Um, you know, yeah, we've been alive for 28 years, lived in the state, never left, and I knew nothing about this, and just to learn that it was, you know, this was the big thing before the school shootings and mm-hmm. all this stuff, the public place shootings is, is the biggest mass casualty thing of its time, and I think that we can learn a lot from it, especially with all these things happening that, you know, we're talking about specifically school place violence, you know, and it's the fact that it's not just having guns in the home that kids bring it's not just disgruntled like employees it's not that kind of stuff this guy was pissed off that he had lost elections that he couldn't pay his mortgage he was had a rift with the superintendent and he was mad that the citizens had voted him out of office they were mad that he had voted uh, they voted against this tax that made him not be able to pay his mortgage and so he decided to take it out as revenge on their children and that to me, it just screams that it's not just it's not just guns. It's not just keeping things in the home people can access. It, the bigger issue is mental health, and the big issue is, you know, we need to look at getting people help and how to how to help people just deal with their problems. You know, how do we give people a constructive outlet to deal with their feelings? Because it's a thing that that this pressure cooker, like I said, that just leads him to. Yeah, and to take revenge, and it's and obviously he never learned a way to properly deal with it. So, actually, that was an interesting thing to lead things off with um, before we talk about trash bag murders. Yeah, well, trash bag Andrew Kehoe. Trash bag Andrew Kehoe. Trash bag farming. Yeah, soup. farming in the soup farmer. Hopefully, you if there is a hell, you're in hell, and you have to you don't get to wear a suit. That's your punishment. Well, you got to burn naked. <laughs> you, you have to be in a banana hammock. With yep. barbed wire around. With barbed wire around your yeah. feet, yeah. fucker. I, I couldn't even handle that. that Poor horses. This is overkill. Who does that? Yeah. Who gives that? Well, thank you guys for tuning into our first episode. Uh, next week, I'm going to be bringing us a story, and it's going to have to do with cults and some creepy underground stuff you may not have known about Detroit. So Ooh. yeah. Yay. So, Yay. More shadows to explore. Bye guys, we love you. Research this week is brought to you by Kate using the book Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing by Arnie Bernstein. Our logo was made using logomaker.com, which is L-O-G-O-M-A-K-R.com. And we got our music from Joseph McDade from josephmcdade.com. If you guys have a couple bucks, support his Patreon. He's incredibly talented. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.